Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, our Menard Family Philosophy and Ethics professor, Dr. Justin Clark, my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael, and our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill. All right. Well, today's episode is going to be kind of, uh, how is the government paying for this <laughs> stimulus uh, crisis stuff? The question stemmed from my neighbor across the alley here in Ottawa, Kansas. I live just a few blocks from the university and he was out doing some yard work and I was bringing some garbage out and he said, hey Russ, how is the government funding this stuff? And I'm like, well, do you got 10 minutes? And he went on to say, uh, there doesn't seem to be any media source that's really that doesn't catch much media attention. It's just uh, all the other stuff that we're hearing. And so I'm sure there's a lot of people out there. And I, I said, well, we've talked about it a little bit on our podcast, but it sounds like that's uh, very podcast worthy because I think there's a lot of people out there that are wondering how does the government do it? So I thought we'd start off today um, with uh, some of the process. So the bottom line is the government is borrowing the funds and it does it through um, treasury bills, treasury certificates uh, of a lot of different durations. So a, a treasury note is a marketable security. It's simply an IOU from the US government. Um, they are sold on Wall Street. And so it basically says, hey, I wanna get a million dollar loan for 2% interest and uh, the government says, I owe you $1 million, and they sign it, and the holder of that bond will get coupon payments over the course of time. So on a million-dollar bond, just to make up some numbers, let's say they're getting uh, $50,000 a year in what's called a coupon payment. So it's a guaranteed payment from the U.S. government. The holder of this five-year bond for the next five years, whoever's holding it, will get a $50,000 payment. And then at the end of the, of the term, when it matures, then the holder of that piece of paper will get uh, the million dollars back as well. So it's just a, a loan, but it's a marketable security. So it's a financial asset. And what makes it marketable is that they're standardized and kind of blessed by brokers and Wall Street um, so that it is a commodity. And so your local banks uh, do this. If any of you listeners have a a money market mutual fund or something, that's part of the bank managing their portfolio of deposits. Um, the U.S. government is considered the safest place pretty much to put your money. Um, they've never fully defaulted on anything. There was kind of a question mark at one point in time, but basically we've always made good on our funds. We've established that we're a very credible place to loan money to. And so uh, we get the best interest rates. And in the finance world, uh, we consider that the risk-free rate. So when we look at other alternatives, we're like, okay, so here's the bottom line. I could invest a million dollars in the U.S. government bond and earn, let's just say, 2%. Um, or I could go buy 
a uh, GM bond, right? General Motors corporate bond. And in order for General Motors, we all know that's a little bit risky, right? They're not even making cars at this point. Um, so you know you're taking on a little more risk than the U.S. government. General Motors, unlike the U.S. government, has had some problems in the past of not always being able to make good on bond payments or other things. Um, so you're taking on some additional risk. And so let's just say that the GM bond, the corporate bond was paying uh, 6%. So the 6% minus the 2% that the gov- you could have got with the government makes a 4% risk premium. So the premium is the difference between the risk-free rate and the riskier asset. Okay, so that's a little bit of where the government's role is in the borrowing uh, market. Uh, they are borrowing money continuously because as we've done on a different episode, our national debt is about 20 trillion, depending on how you carve things up with intergovernmental loans and other things. But um, it's about equal to our gross domestic product in the United States. So for the first time in really history, we hit the 100% level. In other words, our debt is about equal to our income. If we are making 23 trillion a year in terms of gross domestic product or income, um, that's about what our national debt level is at. So the government is always daily um, doing transactions in the bond market. Okay, so that's the funding mechanism. Um, Let's see, my people, any questions or comments? I I hate to turn this into kind of a lecture, but for this part, but uh, let me just pause so I stop talking for a sec. So maybe you could give a two-sentence answer to your neighbor then when he says, how is this being funded? The government is purchasing bonds. Uh, The government is selling the bonds. Selling the bonds, yes. Okay, so here's the – I don't know if I can do it in two sentences. You already know that that constraint was going to be tough. But um, Because the other piece to this puzzle is that the monetary system of the United States, the Federal Reserve, is independent and separate uh, operating entity, if you will, with the fiscal uh, side of the House. So fiscal policy is Trump and Congress, more or less, let's call it. And the Federal Reserve is monetary policy. So the control of the money supply is all done by the Federal Reserve. And so when we get into circumstances like this, there's a real good reason why it's independent. If Trump says, oh, I need two and a half trillion to help this COVID deal out, he can't go run to the printing press and tell the chairman of the Federal Reserve to print off two and a half trillion. So technically, there's an independence of power there. That's not a possible thing to do. Um, the Federal Reserve Chair is not under President Trump or Congress. It's completely independent. So they play a little game. I don't even know if it's a game, but they kind of work uh, discreetly running the printing press. And it goes something like this. Trump signs an IOU for a million <clears throat> of bonds, and then the Fed goes and buys that bond. So if the Fed purchases that bond... Now the Fed is holding an asset of the bond, and they're the ones that are entitled to that coupon payment that's going to follow, because whoever's holding the bond gets the coupon payment. But it's technically another arm of the government. And so what happened then is that the money did enter the system uh, through the purchase of the bond. And so while we're not printing money, like literally running the printing press and getting the money into the system, we are one shade under that where 
Trump writes an IOU and the chair of the Federal Reserve buys it. And so it's, go ahead, Jacob. Buying those securities, that's called quantitative, quantitative easing, right? Yes. Yeah, that was the, we went through uh, three or was it even four phases of that quantitative easing. So yeah, listeners, if you heard about that, that was essentially the Fed going in and buying uh, different types of assets. They actually started buying longer term assets. They typically hold in their inventory only very short term bonds for the government, but now they've been getting into longer term bonds. And I think that the same is true with the COVID. So let me pause again, uh, Justin, did that, that was longer than two sentences, I think, but, uh, and I haven't even answered my neighbor yet, but uh, that, that was kind of where the conversation went, uh, is that we are not technically printing the money, but kind of printing the money. And, and there is a fundamental difference that the federal government is required to pay back that bond. Um, so they can't just rip them off and write them off. Like if they did that, that would be truly printing money. That would be really one step of printing the money. What's going to happen is when that million dollar bond comes due, the, um, the government's just going to issue another million dollar bond to replace it. They're going to have the money in one hand and pay off the other bondholder. So that's the perpetual nature of the bond market is that they're always some bonds are coming due, they're getting paid, but then they're issuing more. And so we're always issuing bonds to cover our, um, not only our current debt, but our perpetual deficits, which was another podcast talk that we talked about where the government can't seem to collect enough tax revenue to pay for their spending. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're entering the, the market for borrowing. All right, so that kind of sets the stage a little bit. I was a little bit surprised, uh, listeners, the Federal Reserve, all of this is very transparent, which is good news too. Um, thank you, Constitution and other evolution of, of things that uh, you have data access to, to this too. So I pull up uh, what's affectionately known as FRED, which is the um, Federal Reserve. Um, it's actually the St. Louis Fed keeps track of data, all kinds of data, unemployment and everything else. And so one of the things you can look up is the balance sheet for the Federal Reserve. And when I did that, I was a bit surprised to find that the Fed has increased the purchases of these bonds to the tune of the over $2 trillion uh, since March 16th. So indeed, we are utilizing the printing of money, at least in the short term. I, I hate to use that word because we're really not fully printing the money. There's going to be a lot of, oh, conspiracy theory folks and, and uh, maybe people on the libertarian edge that, oh, we're really, you know, it's running the printing press. It could be if we were a corrupt government, but I still have faith that we are not on that path. Now, how do we dig out of it is the bigger question. So the bond purchases by the Fed have indeed gone up by uh, $2 trillion. The data I was looking at is that we were at about $4 trillion of, of Federal Reserve assets, which is a lot of that is consisting of these bonds, and it went up to $6.3 trillion. Um, so basically, in the matter of the month and a half, the Federal Reserve has soaked up all of those um, bonds that were out there. And a part of me thought before checking the data that, well, maybe China bought some, or maybe, 
maybe uh, some rich people in other countries bought something. Like it, the, the love was kind of spread a little bit. I figured the Fed was the majority purchaser, but as near as I can tell, they purchased pretty much all of them, which is a little alarming maybe, but I don't want to be too alarming. So Yeah, so as someone who's uh, definitely more on the the people Russ was deriding as conspiracy <laughs> theorists. Uh, Russ's explanation doesn't give me any confidence that we're doing anything but printing money by another name. Um, and every single worry that you uh, one would would have about just flat out printing the money seems like that that's that this has very little difference from that. And I mean, you can go back to. You know, in, in March, when people were worried about banks and they had Cash Carey, who was the Minneapolis Fed guy on 60 Minutes, and he said, don't worry about the money in your banks. We have, <laughs> the Federal Reserve has an unlimited amount of cash. We can, Which is true. <laughs> uh, because they well, can print it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it better not be true. <laughs> uh, so, again, the, the fundamental difference is in a country where they are literally printing the money, where they're like Zimbabwe, where they're just making bigger bills and buying stuff with them, the only corrective mechanism, the, the equilibrating force is inflation. So now you've got uh, the old phrase is too much money chasing too few goods. And so the prices of goods and services are all going to go up and we're essentially going to pay an inflation tax. So Venezuela is in the thousand percent per month inflation during their crisis here. The last couple of years, Zimbabwe went to um, a, literally a trillion percent inflation. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the, the spouts of hyperinflation. And so my point is that when you truly print money, that is the only mechanism. So what is the mechanism for the United States so that it doesn't become hyperinflation or inflationary only? Taxes have to go up taxes have to go up. So we could maintain our new de de debt. So if it, it, let's just, again, kind of rounding numbers, we were at 23 trillion of debt. This year, we just printed off another 2 trillion. So now we're at 25 trillion, right? So if next year, our government ran a balanced budget, which is almost a joke, if they capped it, or if they actually charged more taxes so that we were collecting more tax revenue than government spending and actually paid down the debt, then we could take it. We, that would be another way to correct, to make things right, so to speak. So if I'm getting you right, you're saying just printing the money is a problem because that can lead to inflation, but we only have inflation that can lead to only inflation, but we, the United States, have this great way to solve this problem, which is this thing that has a 0% chance of actually happening. So <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. And I, and I am with you with close to a 0% chance of that happening in any real way. Um, so we definitely, another way to look at it is we've been running a trillion dollar deficit normally. And so now we're just running a couple extra trills. So we just accelerated where we would be three years from now anyway. <laughs> might be Might be another way to look at it, but... Um, yeah, so all the more reason that um, some fiscal responsibility is going to become uh, important at some point in the future. But as Justin appropriately said, likely we will just keep kicking that can 
uh, down the road and running another deficit. So this looks like a good time for a break. Um, after break, what I want to do is come back and say how detrimental it is that nothing really productive happened with the money. So that, that, that's a scary thing all by itself too. And so I'll tease you with that one. We'll talk back here in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785-248-2500. Hey, Gortney Institute. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, welcome back. Hitting the road here with these payments and the spending that is going on and how destructive it is to really stop businesses and then somewhat substitute it with free money. And um, there's a big danger here that in a market system with voluntary trade, we create a win-win situation. And I think you listeners can all appreciate this. This is definitely some basic principles 101 that the reason you don't uh, make that shirt yourself is because you can go to Walmart and buy that shirt for $17. And if you were to do it yourself somehow or to get out a sewing machine or whatever, you'd be wasting a bunch of time unless you've just got a personal satisfaction because it was part of your hobby. It's time that you could be doing something else, possibly at a job making money. And so it's actually costing you a lot of money to actually have to make the shirt. And so you're better off in a big way with the amount of hours that we save. There's some amazing statistics that show the movement forward in terms of uh, Thanksgiving dinner comes to mind. Richard Braun did something where um, how hard do we have to work for the Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, an easy one, I think, to, to kind of visualize is uh, out on the farm uh, washing clothes so the actual uh, job of washing clothes with a washboard and a, and a tub um, would be a six to eight hour deal. And so you buy a washing machine and all of a sudden start the button, boom, it's done. All of a sudden that freed up a whole bunch of labor um, that they could be doing milking more cows or whatever, you know, some other farm work. So that's the nature of our market system. Um, the government is possible to invest in productive things. So maybe the road system, um, possibly internet or something. I mean, there, 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 there can be some things that are uh, somewhat commonly shared goods that make us all more productive or make uh, a larger fraction of people productive. 
So having a decent highway system without potholes, uh, the truckers can move faster, there's not as much wear and tear on the tires, et cetera, et cetera. And so investing in some public projects like that um, can add to our productivity. That brings us to the COVID deal. <laughs> when we're not working and we're being paid not to work, that goes in immediately the opposite direction. So we're not getting any of that value creation. Again, this was part of what my neighbor asked, like, okay, well, but at least the money's keeping the system running, right? Allowing some spending. So I take my $1,200 check and, and I go run to the store and buy it and then they can pay their employees and that's economics. Well, it's a small part of the overall puzzle, but what it was missing was that value creation, that value add. And so without that, we eventually have to pay for that 1200 and there wasn't really anything additionally productive that was invested in. In other words, we had people sitting idle that could have not been idle. And so they could have been creating value with a paycheck, which they probably would have preferred to do um, anyway. So, so Jason, um, what was your thoughts on the payment thing? So they, they gave out like blanket checks based on how much money people make, but they really didn't take the time to go through and decide who's really affected by this, especially with the personal checks. Right. I kind of wanted your opinion on that, especially, I I mean, I get it in a sense because it would take a really long time to determine people would probably have to submit proof and that is time consuming, but it seems inefficient. Like you want the money to go to people who would need it, I guess. And yeah. You know, and, and I have a little answer to that that just kind of dawned on me, but it was, it was, I was impressed with how they handled the PPE SBA program. They caught some heat that big corporations sucked up all the a large fraction of the money, but it was characterized as a loan that was forgivable. And I'm not so sure they couldn't have done something similar for us um, citizens. Again, this is a flash that just came to mind as I'm speaking now. But suppose that $1,200 came to you as a check, but it's technically as, let's even call it a 0% loan. But if you have some COVID proof that you were impacted, loss of job, uh, loss of a spouse's job, whatever, whatever you want to call it, then it could be forgivable. But if you didn't have some sort of COVID excuse, you were actually supposed to pay it back. You see how I'm getting the money out to everybody but now requiring payment back for the folks that maybe didn't really need it. And I think that would have been a clever way to get money to people in need quickly, but not be, on the, not be so wasteful in getting money to people who didn't really need it. Because I think you're spot on. We could have been more targeted, and I think that could have been time maybe uh, more well spent efficiently to find the people that really needed help. And again, I'm, I wouldn't even be adverse to, in some cases, them getting more than $1,200. Like, where did $1,200 come from, right? It's like, oh, well, we can do the budget this way. And, you know, who knows where that number exactly came from. But it seems like a lot of inefficiency there. So uh, totally agree. Um, not to mention maybe investing in uh, masks or other things that might have been more productive than just putting cash out there, uh, at least to the people who didn't really need the cash. So, 
and, and that kind of for our faith and economics uh, podcast here brings up some maybe some moral issues. Justin, what were you thinking on morality with related to this stuff? Uh, well, there is a question about what in a situation where the government is or is not printing money, uh, depending <laughs> on how, how you want to characterize it, what the morality of, of an inflationary system is and why when governments sometimes do enter those hyperinflationary phase, what happens to the people who get you know, financially wrecked and how they get wrecked and yeah. what people get wrecked. And it's, you know, it's people who save in cash because they expect their currency or, you know, you expect the dollar to keep, to be a store of value. And yeah. so, you know, you exchange your effort and uh, what you want to do is, you know, save value so that you can employ it later on. And then a third party that isn't you uh, reproduces so many of those tokens or, uh, you know, pieces of paper or whatever that they make yours essentially worthless. Yeah. And so while, you know, in the same way you might say, well, it's not really theft and sure they aren't going in and taking your, your bank notes out of your safe, but what they are doing is uh, doing something that makes your notes worth one step. Once, yeah, I was going to say one step under that, right? Kind of yeah. <laughs> like the printing money thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I got a, a couple thoughts came to mind when you said that. I think from a moral standpoint, maybe a Christian standpoint, but not necessarily. We generally believe the rich should pay proportionately more than the poor. So we have a progressive income tax structure so that the more you make, the more they take. And not everybody agrees with that, but that is the system that's on the books. And so I think that's a little bit of an evolution of our culture and morality and, and so on and so forth to some degree. And the problem with the inflation tax is that it does go against that in that it's all evenly spread. So if inflation creeps in and now prices are rising by 10% across the board, 20%, 30%, and this is affecting all prices of all goods and services, then the poor are proportionately paying more of that. So that's what we call a regressive tax. And I'd say it's immoral um, to kind of put it in your context. Um, if we do things, if we have policy um, that has been built up over time that, you know, again, the rich pay proportionally more than the poor, here we are doing a policy that is completely regressive where the poor are going to be hit harder uh, proportionately than the rich. So that was one thing that came to mind. And I think you're right in terms of institutionally with the store of value of your currency, we kind of, again, from a moral standpoint, have a system where we expect stability of the currency. And the, the Federal Reserve's goal, by the way, uh, listeners, is 2%. And so they closely monitor that. And so in theory, if uh, these actions cause the inflation rate to start creeping up to 3% or you know, start hitting that window, then they, if they're following their playbook, they will be pulling back the money supply, which will cause interest rates to go up, potential more... Uh, negative effects for the economy, uh, but that would be the appropriate response if inflation is still their primary target, that we're not going to let this thing be inflationary. So 
<clears throat> Jacob, you had something from CBS News. What was what was that that you had? Um, so um, I this article. Oh, I was, yeah, I was going to young Jacob with the CBS News part. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, looking at this article here, it's saying that even though our interest rates are historically low, um, about six trillion of our national debt is money that the government owes to itself. That's right. Yeah. So. A fraction of that overall number that's usually published, which was the one I used, I did say that, depending on how you look at it, because I, I tend to ignore this as well, is called in, intragovernmental debt. And so <clears throat> the social security system has a reserve, a pile of money. By the way, social security people, not enough to pay, or Jason and Jacob, my young 20-somethings, um, you know, you're pretty much hosed as it goes bankrupt in 2038, I think is the latest projection. But nonetheless, government does have a pile of, of uh, money, as little as it is, that they then do borrow, uh, loan out to other government functions um, as they manage their portfolio. So um, it is true that some of the national debt is intra-governmental, which I think is fair to cancel out and look at external debt. And then you can also subtract debt to U.S. citizens. So it's still outside, but you're kind of like, oh, well, we just owe other Americans. So that, you know, what's the big deal? We pay back the debt and an American gets more money. It's probably a rich American and they go buy another yacht. And then the yacht sales company gets money and they pay their employees. And that's the, that's economics. And um, so <laughs> I don't buy that in terms of necessarily uh, it being a, a good thing all by itself, but I'm fair to do that. And then finally, what you get to is external debt. So now we're paying the Chinese, right? They hold a bunch of these bonds. And so we pay money to them. That money leaves the country. And then we've got potential changes there that might involve exchange rates and some other things as well. So um, definitely something to consider, uh, but not discount too greatly that we do have other arms of government in need of money. If they can't get it from the other side of the government, they, they're probably going to need to get it from somewhere um, as other pieces of the government go. So Jacob, that kind of led into your question. You had something about exchange rates or something. Yeah. Um, I was just asking you if because of the expansion of the money supply, if the global <laughs> demand for the U S dollar declines, wouldn't that be deflationary or what would the, I guess the impact on that? <clears throat> Yeah, so there are a number of moving parts um, related to this inflation equation. And so um, if global demand is down um, and there are pressures for decline of the exchange rate, um, that can be related to, the, to putting less pressure on inflation. So as the money's coming out, if globally things are changing, that's one mechanism you said that another article mentioned velocity of money? Yeah, that um, basically since the shutdown in the last five or six weeks that the, the price velocity has decreased. Yeah. So the idea of velocity is the number of times a dollar, the average number of times a dollar gets turned over in the economy. And that was brought up by one of my favorite economists, Milton Friedman, um, with the equation of exchange. And so the idea was we have a, an amount of money that's in circulation that's controlled by the Federal Reserve. And so um, if we look at the number of times those dollars get spent, that should be equal to the dollar value of all of our spending, which would be nominal GDP, uh, the dollar value of all final goods and services produced, and, and which is also equal to our income. 
So uh, the point was if, if velocity goes down, that can be a, a factor that would lessen the inflationary pressures that we were talking about earlier. So all of those are fair arguments. Um, but Milton Friedman once said, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And so in the long run, in the long run. And so all of that velocity fluctuation, that might be a short term thing, but once we get back to doing it uh, a little differently, uh, as we recover, um, exchange rate, you know, the, globally, things will stabilize, they'll come to some sort of equilibrium. And so if we have continued to have two and a half trillion dollars of money printed, as Justin would appreciate, uh, that Milton Friedman's prediction would be, unless we're all hoarding cash, which by the way is what happened during the financial crisis, uh, cash was king. And so biz, uh, banks and other businesses were sitting on big cash reserves. And so that money wasn't going out into the system. And that's why some of the actions of the Federal Reserve that were similar to what's going on today in terms of uh, buying up government bonds and what quote unquote printing money, um, that didn't have the inflationary effects that uh, some economists were predicting, like myself, by the way, um, because people's behavior changed, that they were holding on to cash. If that cash is not getting out into the system, you're not gonna see the inflationary effects. It's kind of like this, like Jason, um, did you um, spend your $1,200 check or what did, what did you do with it? I mean, I spent part of it. Okay, so it came in, um, How much? what fraction of it did you spend? Just curious. Maybe a quarter, like our ah, tech fees and stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. so my point with that is that if a lot of people hold on to that because of the uncertainty in the world and they didn't really need the money in the first place, if they're holding it liquid, then that money's not going to enter the system in the same way as if we all ran out and spent it immediately at Walmart, all $1,200. So the same thing's going on there. It's going to be less of an inflationary effect if people are holding on to their cash reserves. Um, so that'll be another factor. So there's all these little pieces that are going to be out there um, floating around for a while. And uh, I do think that the Federal Reserve will uh, take action to not allow inflation to get crazy. Um, they, I guess, surprised me in a positive way coming out of the old financial crisis. I, I, I think the jury was out whether they could control things if they went crazy with what, similar to what we just did. But I'd say they kind of pulled it off. I think they kind of got lucky because all these various factors, if they fall in the right place, then what seems to be maybe masterful that they kept inflation in check might have been a little bit of luck. And so that could go the other direction too um, if, we, if we start to have more bouts of uncertainty. Um, it might be more and more difficult for the Federal Reserve to take action to correct what could be inflationary. All right, well, anything else for the good of the cause? That looks like a good place to end. Um, thank you all for listening here to this production of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. We appreciate you listening and telling your friends about us. In fact, it helps us rise through the ranks of the 
of the search engines if you give us a nice little five-star review, especially on the iTunes. Uh, that iTunes filters through the other systems. So um, if you like what you hear and want to continue to hear more, please uh, reach out to your pages and give us a little rating. That would be awesome. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>